Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Kynacker, and I got my good buddy here, Jonathan Neville, is back on the program. How are you doing today, Jonathan? I'm doing great. Good to see you, Steve. Yep, it's always a pleasure. And uh, as you can see, folks, I am wearing one of the hats that was the insp inspired by one of his books, letter number seven. Uh, let's <laughs> yeah. make Kimora great again. Uh, this is the very last one that Boyd Tuttle had. And I want to thank you, Boyd, for giving this to me. Um, and one of the reasons I asked Jonathan to come on the program is that, you know, Jonathan has people who are critical of him. And we wanted to do just a brief response to some of the uh, latest criticisms and some, some papers uh, that were written um, critical of his work. But before we go there, I think Jonathan wanted to kind of explain how we how he got here. Uh, what made you decide to even take this path in your journey and uh, and, and so to give us a, a broader context? OK, I, yeah, I appreciate you asking it that way, because there's there's really kind of two levels. There's how I got involved with church history to begin with, with uh, starting with my tour with Rod Meldrum and Wayne May and all that Book Mormon geography stuff which led to the whole um, Benjamin Winchester narrative and the books on Nauvoo, which was actually my first experience with the interpreter and their tactics. So if down the road, we could talk about that maybe. But more recently, the ones that uh, the, the articles that we're talking about specifically today that were published in the interpreter earlier this year had to do with my books on Joseph Smith and the translation of the Book of Mormon and the Jonathan Edwards material. And the way those got started, I was, um, I, I've always been interested in the issue of the translation. I read all Royal Skousen's books and the other materials, you know, that various people have written, including in the interpreter. And I was in Africa. My wife and I had moved to uh, Mauritius, which is a little country off the coast of Madagascar in, in the Indian Ocean. And we were there on a project that turned out that it wasn't quite ready for us. And so we were there a little prematurely. My wife was more occupied than I was, but I had a lot of spare time. And I can only spend so much time at the beach. They have gorgeous beaches, you know. But I, I had this nagging sense that there was more to know about the translation. And so I had read what Carmack uh, and uh, Skousen had written in their books about early modern English and so on. But I had the question in my mind was, if Joseph Smith really translated the Book of Mormon, there should be evidence of his uh, vocabulary, his lexicon in the text itself. And so I, I, I saw what Skousen and Carmack had written about it. Actually, I corresponded with them about some of these issues. But because I had this extra time, I, I thought I'd start with the Palmyra newspapers. And I got a list of, uh, I, I found online all the Palmyra registered newspapers from uh, the early or the late 1820s. And I started going through them and finding all this, what I call non-biblical Book of Mormon language. There were not a lot, but there were some examples of it in there. This Skousen had said it had to be early modern English. Well, they were right there in the Palmyra newspapers. And that's when I first started it with my spare time that I had in Mauritius. And then as I've kind of explained this maybe before that as I delved into it more in depth, I made a list of all the non-biblical uh, terminology in the Book of Mormon. And as I started researching the origins of it, I kept coming across this Benjamin Winchester. I, I, not Benjamin Winchester, Jonathan Edwards stuff. And so I had this material for two or three years and I was accumulating it, kind of writing it. And, and I shared it with a few people. 
who said, you have got to publish this. This is a breakthrough and understanding the Book of Mormon, et cetera. And I just felt reticent to do so, partly because there was so much more work that needed to be done. And partly because I, I anticipated that uh, <laughs> the, the Sith Sayers, as I call them in the church, would, would just have a, a fit over it, you know, because um, it, it contradicted their narrative. But over a period of years, then I went to China. I worked on it when I was in China in my spare time. And when we came back from China, I, I decided, okay, it's finally time to publish this. And so over a period of time with my peer reviewers and so on, we finally published that book. Was, I think it was in 2021, both The Men That Can Translate and The Infinite Goodness, Jonathan Edwards. And so, as, as you know, you've, you've helped in uh, discussing this book with a larger audience. And I, I'm really enthusiastic about both of them. I think they, they hold up real well. I was anticipating uh, lots of criticism. So when um, Brother Krauss wrote his first article in The Interpreter, actually, he wrote two articles. He wrote a separate review of each one. My first thought was, okay, so he did his review. You know, I looked through it and I thought, <laughs> life is short. I have cost-benefit analysis every time I consider a project. And I really didn't see the point of addressing his, his all his issues. But uh, in an ensuing month or so, I heard from people that said, oh, I really should respond because unsuspecting readers won't understand uh, the errors that he's making and so on. So I contacted Jeff Lindsay, who I consider one of the good guys at The Interpreter. He's, he's a fair-minded guy. I actually met him in China and so on. But he's, he's really a good guy. I, I disagree with him on a lot of points, but he's open-minded and fair unlike most of the people at the interpreter. So I contacted him and he said, yeah, we'd be happy to have you publish a response. So I, I wrote, but he gave me the model of um, Matt Groh's response from the Joseph Smith papers when the interpreter published articles critical of their Book of Abraham volume. And, and that one was less than 3000 words. And he said something along those lines. So I wrote my response, and I think I ended up around nearly 4,000 words, which is a little beyond what they expected, but they were cool with it. <clears throat> we had some back and forth. For example, I used the Sith acronym, the Stone in the Hat acronym, just to avoid having to repeat Stone in the Hat every time. And they objected to that. They said it was pejorative, you know, offensive, whatever. So I, I dropped it. You know, I was cooperating with them. And I sent than that uh, response. They delayed publication, it seemed like for a long time, to give Krauss a chance to do his rejoinder. And then Krauss published his rejoinder, which was, uh, I think it was longer than my response. <laughs> and so uh, he, he challenged me. He said, oh, there's all these things that I didn't uh, address, even though all I had was a, a brief window of response time as it was. So I thought, all right, I'll go ahead and take the time to do a detailed response to his rejoinder. And I asked Jeff about it, and Jeff said, well, we're not going to publish another response from you. But you can make it in the comments to his article. <laughs> so I ended up with the, the way the interpreter framed this was they have something like uh, 40, around 40, over 40,000 words of Krauss's attacks versus my little 3,000 or 4,000 word response. So as, as I mentioned to you, I just posted my response on my interpreter peer reviews blog, and I'm gonna send a, 
a comment into the interpreter. We'll see whether they publish it or not. But I think I thought it was um, helpful for people. You know, it, when I look at it, something like this, I analyze it critically. You know, I, I read his response. And I think, well, this is doesn't make sense, so that doesn't work, and so on. But I have to acknowledge that other readers that aren't as familiar with the material or um, the background don't have the the luxury of, of making a fair assessment. So that's why I went ahead and did the response. Okay, so, and and, and I wanna just say, you know, I've had some interactions uh, about it a little over a year ago. I I, uh, I actually, Spencer has a blog and, and uh, he had um, kind of m not misquoted me, but quoted me out of context. And uh, we were on a Zoom call together, and within 45 minutes of us getting on the Zoom, he, he made the corrections. And so I want to give props to, to Spencer. Now, I did invite Spencer to come on my program, and uh, he he declined at this time to come on. And uh, I, don't, I don't really understand this because everybody comes on my program. It, like, it's been dubbed the Switzerland of Mormonism. It's a neutral yeah. place, and this is a place where you're actually going to get a fair hearing. And this is the difference between me and just about everybody else is, I don't have a dog in this fight. I am not in any camp. Um, I, I really invite people from that are critical of Jonathan. Uh, I'm, I'm giving you my platform. And then also, I just want to address something. Um, there's another person um, who had quote, totally made up a quote, literally put quotes around something I did not say. And this is one of your main people that criticizes you. And I even rewatched the video where he did it. And I said, I didn't say that. <laughs> and I'm like... How in the world am I supposed to think like if they're quote, literally making up a quote that I said, how am I supposed to, and, and that's my experience, how am I supposed to engage anything that he's posting in his blog? Now, I just want to know, I did reach out to somebody at the um, BH Roberts Foundation and asked them to reach out to this particular individual. Um, and I told him, and, and I even said, I just want to sit down and chat with him. Um, I, off the record, I just want to kind of see what makes him tick and kind of get his perspective for background where he's like, wh why is it that you spend so much time uh, critical of Jonathan and his work? And it's, I want to hear his side. And I never heard mm -hmm. back. So Richard, I think you can do a better job. Um, and please don't misquote me. Um, that's all I ask uh, politely, uh, that you just don't make up quotes. Uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan. I kind of got on my you, you there. would think that would be a reasonable request. Yeah. Right. But I mean, you'll see in my response to, to what Cross wrote here, I mean, I, what I suggested at the end is the interpreter, if they want to be a legitimate academic uh, journal, they would give me a, a an opportunity to peer review his work before he publishes it because it, he just was full of inaccuracies, mischaracterizations, and he, he was hiding the ball from his own readers on a lot of the things he quoted. So. I think it would do the interpreter well. I've, I've offered to do peer reviews for them for a couple of years now. That's why I have a, a blog called Interpreter Peer Review, <laughs> because they need to get some outside input on the material they publish. All, all they are is a rubber stamp for their narratives. And it's it's really kind of a... I, I know RFM once did a show on uh, Dan Peterson and his tactics, and um, I think he did a two-part show on it. You know, and Dan's got this reputation for being having a, a thin skin, and he's always constantly getting offended and stuff. And it's just too bad because he he does a lot of good stuff too. 
as well as, uh, you know, the Jack Welch and uh, the, the people at Fair LDS, they all do some good stuff, but then they, they have this um, obsession with defending or uh, becoming gatekeepers for their narratives. And it's just, it's a little bit inexplicable. I mean, I, I'm not a psychology major, but you see this kind of thing where, where people train their brains to think a certain way and then they're stuck. And that's what you see at the interpreter and Book Mormon Central is, and Fair LDS. So anyway, it's, they're all great people. I don't have any beef with any of them. As you know from my life history, I've had a lot of worse things happen in my life yeah, than yeah. some criticism online. And we're actually going to have you come back on to talk about your background. And this is the thing too, you know, John, is this is the criticism that's leveled. You're, you're kind of part of you know Heartlander stuff, you know, and some right. people, you know, you got Rod Meldrum and you got Wayne May, and they're they're amateurs, and some of the stuff they put out there uh, is not isn't isn't the best you know scholarship you know that they, right. that they it's kind of sloppy you you've talked to me about that and so what you're what you're doing is you're like saying let's bring scholarly uh rigor to more rigor to uh to our stuff and right. to to put out stuff so you're, you're you know you you did a presentation based on some of your work at the mormon history association you want mm -hmm. to engage the scholars and you want to do and so so when so if you're going to criticize the heartlanders you understand is that Jonathan's making an effort to professionalize the scholarship within uh, the, that area and, and and also engaging. So it's, it's I think it's a good faith effort for you to use the yeah. tools of of modern scholarship and implementing it in in your movement. I, and I just want to say I, I'm all for that. I think that's a it's a great step forward for 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 the heartlanders. Yeah, and you know my basic approach is I have that faith model that I went through on another show with you. But the idea is that there's facts that exist that everybody can see and recognize. And then we have assumptions and interpretations and theories and hypotheses, right? And so what I try to emphasize is everybody should be able to agree to what the facts are. And as an example, it's a fact that David Whitmer made the statements that he did. That doesn't mean it's a fact that what he said was true. It doesn't mean he had perfect perception. It doesn't mean he didn't blend his own inferences with his factual observations. But everybody should be able to agree, both you know the John DeLynn CES letter RFM people, as well as the Dan Peterson, Jack Welch, uh, you know, fair LDS people. Everybody should be able to agree to the facts. And then we, once we do that, then we can identify the alternative interpretations of those facts based on our respective assumptions. And that's been my objective all along to, to reach that point. Even Dan Vogel, you know, I mean, I can agree with Dan Vogel 100% on the actual facts, but then it's our interpretations that differ. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think that we, we do a disservice to the general public as well as uh, to members of the church and non-members and then former members and the whole gamut when we hide facts or where, where we uh, dismiss alternative uh, interpretations without exploring them. That's why I like to do these side-by-side -side comparisons as much as I can. And I've, I've been unable to get the, either the Dan Vogels or the Jack Welches to agree to do a side-by-side -side comparison because they prefer having their own silo and their own audience that they can talk to and kind of hold them hostage almost within that silo, you know? Mm -hmm. so, and and that's good. 
and just so you know, folks, so Jonathan, basically, um, we're going to have links to everything that you you responded to uh, in, 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 a, in a breakdown of what Spencer had written um, so so that, that you can see that he does respond to just about almost every individual sentence that 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 Spencer writes. And so that, that we'll, we'll provide links to that. And, you know, and this is the thing, too. You know, I mean, Spencer, actually, I, I like you. I, I think you're a nice person. And and, and, uh, and I think you were you showed a lot of integrity when you when you, uh, you know, when I pointed out some uh, some errors i thought and i thought that was cool and again uh if you want to come on please 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 come on um uh let, let, let me as, as you mentioned that let me mention just one kind of persistent complaint they have and that is that in my books i i cite some of the quote-unquote anti-mormon resources right for example for the journal of discourses i i refer to the mrm site and i i can't understand that criticism because in my view i'm writing for a, a everyone in the world i'm not only writing to an lds audience right and so it doesn't make any sense for me to only cite lds references and it it's the the mrm site in particular did a great job with the journal of discourses of organizing it making it accessible as far as i know they haven't changed any of the language in there so why not use a good a, an effective usable um resource like that even if it's quote-unquote anti-mormon mm -hmm. to them they don't consider themselves anti-mormon as far as i know at, at least they, they don't frame themselves that way and i'd be happy to link to uh you know any source a ces letter whatever mm -hmm. if they had a, a better user interface than say byu does and so it, that's a, the type of objection that cross made in here that uh, peter pan makes and i can't to me, that's evidence of their silo mentality. Yeah, well, and, and we even show that if you look at some of the papers that came out of this group in the 80s and 90s, that if you actually quoted from the Tanners, that was that was a, a, an X, like, that's so <laughs> that's bad. That's another example, exactly. It's like they literally, the Tanners weren't yeah. making stuff up. The Tanners were literally exactly. taking the materials and, and that the church had produced and gave access to these materials for, right. people, for scholars to use. And so that that to me is like, and this is the other thing too, this is the beautiful thing about your book. And when I first started engaging you last year, you were talking about Jonathan Edwards influencing on the text of the translation of the Book of Mormon. And I'm like, well, this is awesome because I'm an evangelical who's engaging the restoration. You bring yeah. in Jonathan Edwards. Now people, it, you, you reframed everything. Now you even said you've had Christians reach out to you who are just intrigued by this whole idea. Right. And now you have, uh, and then, and historically it was always viewed that he's the baddie to mormonism but in many ways you feel that jonathan edwards was a forerunner to the restoration yeah, you absolutely you flipped yeah. it all around and i think that that's that's what original thinking and scholarship does and i want to give you credit because if those of you who are apologists for the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints um you got a guy here who's actually doing a lot of great heavy lifting and work and actually doing bridge building and defending your church and its doctrine and its history yeah, and, and I think it's it's so important for people to realize that the Book of Mormon is squarely within the Christian tradition. It's it's not something that came out to bash Christianity at all. It was just the opposite. And 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 Jonathan Edwards described that. You know, he anticipated the restoration of the church in the latter days and how it would become a, a worldwide phenomenon and so on. And and so everything that Edwards anticipated and looked forward to the book of mormon fulfilled 
I mean, it's, it's just so obvious. And yet LDS people, because primarily because of Terrell Givens, have this impression of Edwards as being a um, almost equivalent to an antichrist, even the way he describes him. And so I'm, I'm just hopeful that, you know, I've been asked to do a, a book on Jonathan Edwards for Mormons. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'll ever have time to do that, but I, I do hope people will engage a little bit more into it. I, I wrote that book just as an introduction. And for example, my database of Edwards, uh, the intertextuality with Jonathan Edwards has grown substantially since I posted it last summer after in connection with the Mormon History Association. And just last week, I added a whole new line of, of intertextuality that had never occurred to me before. Mm. And, you know, Krauss dismisses it as a few random words. Well, that's not what it is, and he knows better. And he never reached out to me to ask for the, the database. He wasn't that interested in it. And I, I never, I still haven't done the intertextuality based on the biblical allusions. You know, Royal Skousen did a book on King James Bible and the Book of Mormon, King James Version and the Book of Mormon, a whole book on it. But he never, he just assumed, it was a bald assumption that, the passages that evoke the or copy blend the King James version came from the King James version, where I'm showing that no, a lot of that stuff came from Jonathan Edwards, because Jonathan Edwards did the same blending that Joseph Smith is credited with, and so it's difficult to tell obviously how much was this only came from the King James and this came from Jonathan Edwards, but when you see Jonathan Edwards doing the same kind of blending that the Book of Mormon has, in many cases identical then it's, it becomes even more evident that the Book of Mormon is in the Christian tradition. You know, last night you sat in on a presentation I gave called A Protestant Defense of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah and, that's awesome. And, uh, and, and folks, I, I, hope, I... By the way, I hope everybody can watch that. I don't know, do you, I guess you could put a link on your... Well, I'm actually on, going to um, just, I'm going to take the recording and edit out um, and just give the presentation. I'm going to post it on my channel if it all goes according to plan. Okay. If that doesn't work out, I think I could even just sit back and do the pre- just record the yeah. presentation for my channel. So, 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 folks, there will be a, uh, I will be, and this is a beta version. I still feel like it's a work in progress, yeah. but it's a Protestant defense of the Book of Mormon. And I reference your book, but I also, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a, I'm able to then, because I'm uh, the concept of Joseph Smith being a traditional translator, and, and even Brigham Young said, you know, if this, if the Book of Mormon was right. came out now, it'd be a different book. He understood the context of the idea that the translator's fingerprints are going to be all over it and the influences of that translator, that world that you, I mean, I think it's a fantastic thing, but also that makes the Book of Mormon more accessible because even John Hamer talked in one of my interviews, he talks about here, you get transcriptions of 19th century uh, sermons in one sense. Uh, King Jen, King Benjamin's is is a transcription, but it's 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 a but it's it's either one of two things: either he's giving you a transcription of a 19th century sermon, or he's engaging King Jen, Benjamin's sermon. And because he's exposed to the sermons of the 19th century and how a sermon and the cadence and the way it works is that when he's interpreting, he's also interpreting it through the lens of a 19th century revival service. Either way. That makes it so much more like like if yeah, I'm a yeah. restorationist Christian like Church of Christ Stone Campbellite guy, uh, if I'm if I'm from that movement within within the evangelical Protestant world, that's makes the Book of Mormon very accessible. Even though they're they're very critical, I think it you know early on you know Campbell it it but at least it, it shows that the, there was an influence from these re, these Christian restorationists mm-hmm. in the Methodists and all this in the text of the Book of Mormon. Therefore, making it a Protestant text 
making it a Christian book. Right. And and bringing up King Benjamin's address, as as we've discussed before, that famous passage, National Man is an Enemy to God, is directly from Jonathan Edwards. Yep. And and if you don't understand Jonathan Edwards' sermon, you don't understand what King Benjamin was saying there, or at least what, how Joseph Smith was translating what King Benjamin said. And, and that's a key indicia of intertextuality. When you have an allusion to a longer passage in another work, you have to understand the other work to understand the allusion. And, and that's one example of many in the Book of Mormon, where if you don't understand the Jonathan Edwards material, you can't fully understand the Book of Mormon. Yep. So so I think it's exciting. I, I think it's awesome. I hope uh, I appreciated the interpreter bringing it to people's attention. Yeah. Hopefully they, they could see through Krauss's uh, criticisms, but at least it brought some uh, attention to the issue. Well, like I said, this is a fair and balanced, neutral zone. You know, uh, if you guys want to come on and talk, yeah, of course, you're more than welcome to. But this is the thing. I think uh, let's, you know, I, I you, like you said, you don't want to do whack-a-mole and just like have to constantly respond. But I want to give you this platform to kind of discuss this because because I feel like it's it's important that you kind of able to give responses to that. But I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what's what's what projects are you working on now, Jonathan? What's your future? Uh, ideas and oh, and, and by the way, is there if there's anything else you want to address about our what we've just been talking about? Also well, yeah, that. let me let me just bookend that with the I, this whole episode with the interpreter because it isn't my first uh, you know rodeo with the interpreter, and the interpreter has this uh, reputation as being kind of dogmatic and and defensive, but it has the potential to be legitimate. I mean, it, the name is unfortunate. It's kind of one of these. You know, I don't know if we've talked about the simulation theory of physics, you know, that we're, we're living in a simulation, right? A lot of physicists are believing that more and more. And the, so once in a while, the simulation winks at us and gives us a name like the interpreter. <laughs> I mean, these these intellectuals could not have picked a more ironic name than proclaiming themselves as the interpreters for everybody else. It's just an unbelievably ridiculous name for a journal. But be that as it may, it still has the potential to be a, a legitimate academic uh, resource for Latter-day Saints and for non-Latter-day Saints, but it has to shed its editorial bias. I mean, it has it puts this thumbprint on every single thing it publishes, and I point that out on my blog several times on, on various articles that they publish. So I guess this is my plea to the editors, uh, the editorial staff, and the interpreters to get rid of the Dan Peterson approach, stop being so defensive. And let's consider multiple working hypotheses. They should they should embrace a thoughtful uh, scholarly article explaining the heartland approach, for example. And maybe they will. I mean, Jeff told me that they would consider anything I would send them. Maybe after this interview, they'll reconsider. But I don't think so because you know they're big boys. They can handle criticism too. And and if they were really legitimate academics. They would encourage alternative, particularly faithful. Obviously, they're coming out from a faithful perspective, which is fine. But there's a wide range of faithful beliefs and interpretations of church history and the history of the Book of Mormon and so forth that are not being represented either by Dan Peterson's interpreter, Jack Welch's Book of Mormon Central, or Scott Gordon's uh, Fair LDS. They just completely uh, omit or censor ideas that are contrary to theirs so that's my little soapbox thing i've pled for that for years i've met with all of them i've talked with all of them about this and they just are 
adamant that they refuse to acknowledge alternative faithful views. So you being the Switzerland, <laughs> we, we can discuss it. So just to update a little bit on my project. So I'm working on an art show for this spring, but as far as LDS material, and my book that I've, I've mentioned before called The Rational Restoration is nearing completion. It's been a, an enormous challenge for me because I have to condense it down to about 300 pages. And there's so much material in there that I, I want to present and, and offer for discussion that it's an ongoing, it's like doing surgery, you know, and, and you have to, when you do brain surgery, you have to be careful not to cut the wrong nerve. And so, but I have to get rid of a lot of material. And it's just taken me a lot longer than any other book that I've done, but I'm hopefully have it done for the end of the year. And, and that's that's really where a lot of my effort is going. Um, I, I mentioned that I'm continuing to add to the Jonathan Edwards database and that just arises serendipitously. Someone will say something, I'll read an article, I'll hear a general conference talk, you know, studying the scriptures, whatever. And immediately I get that little prompting, oh, check that one out. And I will, and there it is. I mean, I, I should tell you, give you an example of how this started. I don't know if I've told you this before, but when I when I was in Africa looking through those Palmyra registers, I was faced with about 125, 150 issues. And I thought to myself, you know, appeal to the spirit. Okay, where should I look out of all these? And I'd be directed, look at this one on this date. And I'd go there, and there was what I was looking for. And then I'd, I'd say, okay, well, that's cool. How about I need another one? And I'd say, well, okay, now skip over to this one. Look at this. And I just was guided to five or six of these specific issues of that newspaper that had what I was looking for. It was amazing. And that kind of thing happens often. I, I assume every that happens to everybody that does research is you feel guided to certain references and sources and so on. And, and that's been a, an ongoing process for me with this book on the rational restoration because there's so much material to incorporate in here. I'm, I'm quoting from Steven Pinker's book on rationality. I'm quoting from Christian sources. Of course, Jonathan Edwards wrote quite a bit about rationality. Um, John Witso's book. Um, I mean, there's just a, such a variety of sources that I'm trying to bring together into what I kind of like to think of as a unified theory. <laughs> Just as an example, to me, it's irrational for Christians to accept the Bible and not accept the Book of Mormon. And the reason is that there's, well, let me just ask you, you don't have to say personally, but to represent Christians. Why do Christians believe in the Bible? What's the rational basis for that? Well, I would say that a lot of it has to do, it has its roots in the Protestant Reformation that they, because they no longer accepted the authority of the Pope, they needed another authority. And so their authority became sola scriptura, scripture alone. Right. And so that's what then the basically what happens, and actually Patrick McKay pointed this out to me in one of my interviews, is that what you guys did was you just switched the Pope for the Bible and, <laughs> and made that your authority. And they're really, yeah. and, and that's, the, that's the funny thing is, is that the scripture does itself does not make that claim uh, as You're boldly right. as Protestants do, right? It's it's yeah. it's a it's a text to be engaged with, but yeah, that's that's mainly the idea is that, um, and even the Book of Mormon even talks about the naysayers, a Bible, a Bible. We already have a yeah, Bible, right? And right. So it, it anticipates that that pushback to the Book of Mormon. 
Well, and and this is this presents kind of the dilemma I face because when I look at the world, as you know, I've lived in and I visited every continent, been to dozens of countries, and I've lived in many different areas of the world. Wherever I go, there's different religious religions that dominate, and it's because of their traditions, right? And so I'm trying to understand how does a, a the God deal with people to present them the truth in spite of their traditions, okay? It's like the Jews didn't accept Christ because he contradicted their expectations. Christians didn't accept the Book of Mormon because it contradicted their expectations and their traditions. So how how is it possible to apply a rational approach to religion? And that's kind of what I'm explaining in this book. And so one way to look at it is to look at the current situation and go backwards. So a lot of people, even in the church, don't understand what the church is really trying to do, which is to establish science. You know, we've talked about this before. But in, in some respects, the church is the most complex organization in the entire world because you know, it's not like the federal government, which is huge and complex, the U.S. federal government, because U.S. federal government has the ability to tax, has the police power, can force people to do what it wants, right? The church is also a worldwide organization, has millions of people involved, but it's all faith-based. There's no coercion anywhere. And so for the, the leaders of the church, they're like herding cats, right? <laughs> they can't say, okay, I have the authority to tax you or to put you in jail or any of that stuff. It has to be all faith-based. And that's what makes it so incredibly complex. Because at this, at, at, on one level, they're working on an individual basis to bring salvation and, you know, to, to the people like traditional churches do. But on a completely other level, they're building uh, Zion. They're preparing the world for the second coming of Christ. And that's a, a very complex, long-range endeavor. Just as one example, uh, I think we've talked a little bit about the Pathway program. Mm -hmm. yep. I, I'm a missionary for Pathway. We train the mission Pathway missionaries in South America. My wife and I do. But that's a that origin of that program was really 50 years ago when now President Eyring was president of Ricks College, and he said at that time, this is in as I recall in the late 70s. He said that he anticipated the day when they, Ricks College would bring education to the entire world. At the time, Ricks College was this little tiny, basically community college in Rexburg, Idaho. So it was a preposterous idea, but he had prophetic vision. And then about 30 years ago, Elder Bednar was the president of Ricks College. And he anticipated, he articulated the objective of 50,000 students at Ricks College. But that would be based on the internet. This is before Google was even invented. But he anticipated this happening. Now, 50 years later, there are more than 50,000 um, students through BYU-Idaho through the Pathway program. So just looking at that one small example of the church's work, the prophets have anticipated what would be needed to, to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. And they put these things in place, and they recognize it takes decades them to materialize it takes people like me little ants moving a few grains here and there you know to build this this whole structure but it's happening right before our eyes and there's no other organization in the world that's seeking to establish science to fulfill the biblical prophecies 
you'd have various Protestant groups or even let's say Catholics or even Hindus and who are seeking to fulfill their view of what their scriptures teach. But there's no structure that's really establishing Zion other than the church. So how did the church get to the point where they're doing this? And that's where you can go back and see how, why the restoration was so critical. It, it's a hinge point in history for this to materialize. So that's kind of how I look at all these things. So when, when a guy like uh, Brother Krauss writes these criticisms of the Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure I'm thinking, man, he just has no idea of, of the perspective and what I'm interested in doing and what I see the Lord doing by presenting the Book of Mormon to the entire world as a, as a gift and as a preparation for the second coming. You know, I, I appreciate what you're saying, because this is the thing. Um, one of the things that my channel does is, you know, I bring on critics of the church. I bring on ex-Mormons, but I yeah. also want to balance it out. Now, by far, the group that I interview the most, it's not a majority of my guests, but by far the largest group of people I interview in my program are faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, and I actually, um, that's why I have you on to sometimes talk about, give commentary in response to some of the controversies going on in the church, like we did with that the Canadian News Report. Right. Uh, but mm -hmm. also, I, I talked with Jacob uh, um, Hansen of uh, Thoughtful Faith, and I recorded uh, 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 with him and his brother. And afterwards, I asked him, I said, would you, I, I have Jonathan Edwards often come on as, a, as to give a faithful voice. Would you be willing, interested in also being a faithful voice? So this is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people from different perspectives who are faithful LDS to come on my program. And I even said, well, I'll just give you an open invitation. Anytime there's a controversy and you want to, Steve, I want to weigh yeah, in on cool. it. Yeah. I, you have an open door. And this is, this is what I'm trying to do. So when I, when I, when I get, um, I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying like, oh, I'm just going to give the Heartlanders and Jonathan Edwards this platform. I want I, this. This is open to everybody. But and, uh, you mean I think you mean Jonathan Neville, not Jonathan not, Edwards. Jonathan Neville. <laughs> that's that's you know that when you when you call you when you go by that name Jonathan Neville. Okay, you got to expect that's going to happen. Uh, but yeah. uh, but again, I just want to I just want to praise your work um, because it, it actually opened the door really when to you and I having these conversations. It was your mm -hmm. uh, these hypothesis, your Jonathan Edwards hypothesis that you started telling me about. And that's what really I think this calls to, to have build a relationship between the restoration and this evangelical. And there are evangelicals who watch this program and they're traditional Mormons. And and and, and they're actually getting it's actually constructive. It's actually we're making yeah. progress, Jonathan. We're actually having conversations. And I feel like we're we're making progress every time you come on the program. Well, and I and I love it. And you know, people seem to forget that Brigham Young said in the millennium there would be people of a variety of denominations. It wasn't you know, they would all maybe all be Christian, but they would have a variety of denominations. And I think that's another important thing for us to remember. You know, the when, when it, I think it was in DNC 10, the Lord said he didn't bring this forward to destroy his church, but to build his church, right? His church was already existing, meaning the Christian community it was already existing before the restoration. All Joseph Smith's uh, role was, was to bring forth the Book of Mormon and restore the priesthood to add to and enhance the Christian community. And I think that, you know, naturally his, his Christian peers objected because they felt like he was teaching a false doctrine or, you know, he contradicted their traditions and so on. But I, I also think that most or many traditional Christians embrace the 
the teachings of the restoration, and they should. They should embrace the Book of Mormon without feeling compelled to join the church. That's that's one of my key points, too. And I think um, some of the brethren have talked about that, that the, the Book of Mormon is God's gift for the entire world, not only for Latter-day Saints or for other, you know, restoration branches. It's for everybody. Everybody can benefit from it. And and I really appreciate what you're doing. You're really unique in this, <laughs> partly because of your your background, but I think also because of your temperament and your your un understanding and compassion of a variety of viewpoints. It's very unusual. And I, in fact, I don't know of another podcast that does this. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And this, this is the other thing, too, and I should have probably included this in my presentation last night, is when I say evangelicals should engage the, the, the Book of Mormon, they don't have to necessarily believe the literalness of the book. But they could also understand the inspiration of the book. And, and I give the, the parallel is this. You have this book that has been a very popular book with Protestants for a very long time called Pilgrim's Progress. Right. Written by John Bunyan. And I like to point this out to the, my secessionist friends who don't believe in dreams and visions and miracles are for today. John, he, the author, says this was given to me as a revelation, as a dream, That's this right. story that I wrote out. And this story that he wrote, which is, was, has been extraordinarily influential in the Protestant world, in one sense is viewed as an inspired document, and it's, it's viewed that way. And I kind of mm -hmm. look at it as if you approach the Book of Mormon like you approach the Pilgrim's Progress, then I think that would be a place where it could be inspiring and edifying to you. I think, you know, that you understand what I'm saying is like it doesn't yeah, have totally. to be, but I think it could be another, it's another Christian book you can engage that perhaps you can get something out of and 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 maybe it could be edifying. I, I talked to a guy last week who, who, who's a lifelong Mormon and he said, I became a born again Christian reading the Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think if, if we open our hearts, we open our minds that God is, uh, he'll throw us a curveball, man. The, the ways of man are not the ways of God. And I think so too often us Protestants get so caught up in this intellectual creedal stuff and we have our own blinders on yeah. that we don't recognize well, God's hand could be be used. He can be used things in a way that's beyond anything we could have even possibly imagined. Yeah. And, and, you know, the blinders that you refer to are prevalent in LDS culture as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, one of my slides that I try to use in every presentation, I show a group of people going in the temple Oh, yeah. And I, above them, I have the caption that says, these guys believe in the Mesoamerican, these guys believe in Heartland, these guys believe in the fantasy world that BYU teaches, you know. And it doesn't matter what you believe about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. You can still participate in the temple. You can still serve one another. You can still build Zion, right? And it's the same with these issues that Krauss brings up, whether, whether Joseph Smith read the words off a stone or whether he actually translated the the engravings on the plates you can accept the book of mormon as a historical document as scripture regardless of what you believe of its origins my point is that for me <clears throat> I, I think it's ridiculous and counterproductive to exclude one hypothesis just because you don't agree with it let's have them all on the table for everybody to choose and like you say god works with us differently based on our own psychology and background and our DNA, even to some degree, let's let people have a variety of approaches to approaching God. 
a variety of ways to understand God and to understand the restoration, not say I'm a gatekeeper because I have a degree, therefore you can't believe X, mm. you know, which is what Jack Welch and Dan Peterson and Scott Gordon are doing right now. Even today, they still do that. And that, it's just, you know, it's no wonder to me that so many uh, young Latter-day Saints are disenchanted when they confront that kind of an approach. And I hope that the message, I, I, I thought about doing a blog called Before You Leave <laughs> and, and say, you don't have to accept the stone in the hat stuff, which I consider nonsense. You don't have to accept that. You don't have to accept the Mesoamerican thing, which doesn't make any sense. But you can, here's, a, here's an alternative way to look at it. Maybe Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery did actually tell the truth. And maybe what they said is actual, uh, can be corroborated by extrinsic evidence. That's my point. Hmm. And so I, I'm still hopeful. I still appeal to Jack and Dan and Scott to open their doors to other faithful points of view and give members of the church a variety of uh, multiple, or what do I say? Multiple, multiple working hypotheses to consider. And, and as well, all the Christian friends that they would consider multiple working hypotheses. Maybe what they were taught their whole lives wasn't the full story, and they should look into the Book of Mormon for themselves and not rely on what someone else told them about it. Well, Jonathan, another great uh, conversation we had today. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the program. Was there any final words you wanted to share with the audience? No, I just um, I encourage people to look at my response. That's what we initially talked about. Mm -hmm. It's uh, There's a link in the... There, there will be a link in the show notes here. And uh, most importantly, don't just read the criticism, read the book. It's like, you know, when they when the Book of Mormon musical came out, the church placed an ad in, in the playbill that said, yep. you've seen the musical, now read the book. And my appeal to anybody who reads Krauss's material is, you've read the criticism, now read the original book. Because otherwise you can't make an informed decision. Okay. Well, that's, that's that sounds great, folks. I think what everything you say makes sense to me. That's the thing. Uh, it just makes perfect <laughs> sense. And I, I I don't like gatekeepers, and that's one of the reasons I keep having you on this program because we're doing an end run around them, and yeah. uh, and and I'm glad to do that, folks. I just want to remind you that this month's uh, book giveaway is David Boyce's 52 Churches in 52 Weeks. He also has the YouTube channel, and I've had him on as a guest. So I want you to make sure that you go, I'm going to have a link to the email, mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. It's all lowercase. And I want you to put in the subject heading book contest. And then I want you to leave your name and address. And then I will enter you into this month's drawing, 52 churches in 52 weeks. Also, I just want to remind you that if you want to financially support this channel, there are links in the description to support us on PayPal and Patreon, as well as our merch store, mormonbookreviews.com. we got hats, mugs, and you name it, it's on there. That's another avenue that you can financially support the channel as well. Uh, don't forget to uh, hit the notification button. Hit like and subscribe. That helps the channel as well. And most importantly, folks, just remember, all the voices of the restoration will be heard here. Uh, Mormon Book Reviews.